Good morning, everyone. I'm Joanne McElvain. I've been a member of this church for quite a few years. I'm here this morning to read today's scripture to you. It begins in John 21:18. After Jesus tells Peter to feed his sheep, Jesus says to Peter, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Hold on a second. You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Thank you, Joanne. So great to have you read that and uh, and just uh, very proud of Joanne's walk with the Lord and her faithfulness to cling to the Lord through a long journey of ups and downs. And, uh, and Joanne and her um, late husband, Stephen, gave us um, a greater perspective on that people could be connected to the church even while away. There were such great amounts of time that they were not able to be here at Faith. And so uh, we've, of course, gone through that season over the last couple of years for most people, but it gave us a good perspective on how people can remain faithful and still call a church their home church, even though they're not able to um, be present as much as they would like to. So if you are watching uh, our service this morning, yes, you missed an incredible moment here this morning in worship together. And so if you can't be with us, our hearts go out to you and uh, just know that it's, uh, it's, you are greatly missed. Now, if you can be with us and you're still watching from home, you missed an amazing moment in worship this morning. <laughs> and I can guarantee you it did not translate onto the TV screen the way it did here live. Um, and so uh, we miss the fellowship with those that have um, kind of wandered away and need to wander back in. Amen. Uh, but that is happening more and more, and we are seeing new faces added to faith each and every week. And so it's just an exciting time to be a part of the ministry here at Faith. And um, uh, especially to be with you on Mother's Day. I'm a little out of sorts because this is a weird Mother's Day for me because the mother of my children is not here. She's um, down with my oldest daughter as we've welcomed our fourth grandchild, and so she's down in North Carolina making sure that all went well and watching the, oh, thank you, watching the 
second grandchild. I'm going to already start messing up the order of things now. They've been coming fast and furious. And so, uh, and uh, if you know it all about the makeup and size of our family, this is just the beginning, the avalanche, if you will, of the confusion and trying to keep up with it all. And then we get to, uh, in, a, in a few weeks, we're going to welcome my mom, who's uh, from South Florida or living in South Florida. Um, and so that, we always look forward to that. She spends a few weeks with us, and uh, she just brings life and color and joy and happiness to our home and everything. My mom is an amazing, I have been a spoiled kid, not because she wasn't strict with me, because she was. All 98 pounds of her still kept me in line, but uh, she has just been an absolute blessing to our whole family. So... Uh, and I know she watches, so I said all those things <laughs> to make sure, because guess who didn't send her a card for Mother's Day? Now, in fairness, I get it from her because she is perpetually late with birthday cards and anniversary cards and everything, and so she'll call us a couple days after the event say, I'm on my way to the post office now. So, just saying, apple doesn't fall far from the tree. <laughs> I still have time. Well, since she's coming, I'm going to make it up to her. I'm going to take her out to a nice dinner. So, <laughs> Well, uh, as we come to the conclusion of the Gospel of John, it's, it's kind of bittersweet. I always look forward to what's next, and I kind of get, it's hard not to get my mind going around where we're going next and things and, and daydream about that a little bit. But, but it's bittersweet in the sense that a lot of life has happened since we started the Gospel of John together, hasn't it? As a church, I think this is one of the interesting things about walking through the scriptures in, in order, if you will, like uh, expositionally starting at the beginning of a book and seeing it through. We've, we've preached nearly 60 messages between the three teaching pastors. We've preached nearly 60 messages. Uh, out of the Gospel of John, which started at the beginning of 2021. Well, a lot of things have changed for the life of the church, in your lives, in my life, and all those things. And so hopefully along the whole landscape of the journey of this Gospel, uh, we've seen that Jesus is a real person. And that Jesus is relatable and accessible. And his disciples were real people. They were real followers with real flaws. That should give us all a lot of comfort. One, knowing that we can come to Jesus with those flaws and receive the same grace that he showed them, but also owning up to the fact that we don't do this very well. We don't do this perfectly. And, uh, and, and yet, it's, at the same time, that was the plan of God to, to um, uh, propel his mission, his gospel, through flawed people. And so to that we say, welcome to the club, Amen. Well, Kent Hughes, uh, one of the commentators that I use quite frequently as we're going through this study, uh, started his chapter off with a story that I, I didn't know from history, and I thought it was quite compelling f- to set the stage for what we're going to talk about in uh, the passage that Joanne just read for us. And that is that Cyrus, the great conqueror of uh, the then-known world, including Babylon, had a general whose wife was expected of treason. And so Cyrus, being a a strict leader and everything, he's brought that wife forward to have her executed. Obviously, it's treason. What else are you going to do? But the general comes to the the leader, and he bows himself, and he says, Would you take my life in her place? Cyrus's response is, "Did you?" he, He says, Can we terminate a love as great as this? 
So he releases her and he sends her home to her husband as they're leaving that whole atmosphere. The general, I mean, the, uh, the soldier looks at his wife and wanting to kind of compliment this amazing thing that they'd been given. He says to his wife, he says, did you see the benevolent look in Cyrus's eyes as he pardoned you? She says, I only had eyes for the one who loved me enough that he was willing to die for me. The life that you and I are called to is one of passionate pursuit of Jesus and his ways. And we're not going to succeed. We're not even going to really move that far forward at that pursuit unless we start to view him the way that this wife looked at her soldier husband. This man of sacrifice who was willing to lay it down just to have her with him one more day. These are the eyes that I believe the gospel of John has given us to see the life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, and the presence of Jesus for all of our lives. Now, last week when we were coming to the conclusion, remember we've said that sort of the climactic event has already taken place. The resurrection's already occurred. He's already been seen by sufficient number of witnesses that the story's going to go on. Now it's already in motion. And yet John takes the time, kind of past the closing credits of the movie, he takes the time to pen the details of the ordinary life to follow for these disciples. And it will even continue, I say ordinary, it gets quite extraordinary and supernatural in the book of Acts, as you see uh, the work that these guys were lit on fire to do after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in this conversation that we saw with Jesus and Peter last week, we saw that Jesus was pinning the center of living life for God on the strength of our love for him. Remember, he said three times to Peter, do you love me? And we said that was kind of a, a, a de-escalating, if you will, form of love. Jesus was starting off by saying, do you love me, agape, the highest, the highest, most divine form of love available? Do you have that kind of love for me? And remember, we said it would seem more appropriate to the tone of all that's happened that Peter's response, because it's, it's, I say, only uh, a phileo love, which is still a godly love, a brotherly love. But Peter's response is a little bit more humble, saying, I, I have appreciation for you. I have a friendship for you. Not because he isn't quite convinced or sold on Jesus, but he's already gone down the braggadocious route. He's already kind of stuck himself out there and said, I'll love you better than any of these guys. And then he failed, right? So now Peter's response is, I don't know if I can claim that same thing. It wasn't borne out in my actions the night of your crucifixion. I denied you three times. And then we saw what Jesus was seeking to do with Peter by asking him these three heart-penetrating questions, very uncomfortable conversation that they were in, was an act of restoring Peter back to leadership, back to fulfillment, back to uh, purpose in the life that Jesus had called him to do. In, in fact, he was matching and undoing those three denials. All Peter saw when he looked in the figurative mirror was, I denied him three times. But Jesus says, but don't you love me? Yes, I do. Don't you love me? Yes, I do. Don't you love me? Yes, I do. I know you do, Peter. So let's not live in the past. Let's not live off of this one moment. We got to go through it. We got to face it up. It really happened. But you're more than that because I am in you. It also helps us to understand that what Jesus was doing, he was doing in front of witnesses. 
which would have been a custom of that day, that if you're going to say something in repetition three times before witnesses, you're solemnizing something. So he's saying to those guys, I am restoring Peter. The whole band is back together and we're going to march this thing forward. How are we going to do that? What are we going to do? Well, Jesus tells Peter to feed my lambs. Tend to my sheep, lead them to a place of nourishment, but also take ownership of them in the sense of, of guardianship and responsibility. Protect them. I'm not going to be here, so I'm leaving it in your charge. Jesus is giving Peter and the others this ultimate authority, even though they've blown it already. But remember what we said, that on the other side of humility is the best opportunity to give somebody responsibility. Because Peter's heart was broken, because his flaws were out there for all to see, and because Jesus had rebuilt him, now he's going to take the mission seriously, and there will be no failing. And that is exactly what Peter experienced for some decades to come in a life of ministry. So now that we've looked back on last week, we settled ourselves on the necessity of love, the height of love, the preeminence of love in everything we do. Now what we're going to do is we're going to settle the cost of love in every place that we go. This is, I think, the important conclusion of, uh, of the Gospel of John is that we evaluate, are we ready to take the next steps? Now that we've gone through this study, now that we've been, been introduced to Jesus, now that we've experienced our, our own self-reflection of our hearts before the purity of Jesus, are we ready to take the next step? Jesus warned of this in Luke 14. He says, as the great crowds accompanied uh, him, he turned and he said to them, remember we said Jesus would have been a terrible marketer because as more and more people came, he went out of his way to say, it's not what you think it is. This, this movement, all the healing, the feeding and all that sort of is not the only thing I'm about. Instead, in verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters... Yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. You could hear lunch pails closing up, people rolling up the blankets. All right, kids, that was a fun show. Time to go home now. Verse 27, so who does not, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and wasn't able to finish. This is what I'm asking you to contemplate, which I know you already do. But we have these opportunities to do it at a deeper level in the context that the Lord is shaping for us this morning. Will you settle on the cost of love in everything you do? I didn't ask, will you execute it perfectly? But will you at least count the cost and say, that's what I'm marching into? So let's look back on the opening couple of verses that we heard read for us already this morning in verse 18. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you don't want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to them, follow me. 
There's some wordplay going on here. There's some imagery and there's some important context that will help us understand because if you're just reading this on first pass and you say, you know, when you were young, you used to be able to go wherever you wanted, but when you're older, then you're going to have to, you know, get led around. And by the way, this is going to explain how you're going to die. We're like, what? What does that mean? There's some context that might help. As Jesus is explaining to him, when you were younger, you used to be able to go where you want, dress yourself. He's helping Peter and others that are listening to understand there's a a contrast, the old life before the mission I'm giving you right now. There was freedom to go about and do what you wanted. Go fishing when you wanted. Remember, they just decided to do that while they were waiting for Jesus. I can't sit around and do this anymore. I'm going fishing. Jesus says, you used to be able to come and go as you want, but now you have a general in your life. Now you have a commander. Now it's about accepting orders and doing it with love. And he's also giving him a bit of an indication. You're going to die as an older man, Peter. It's kind of interesting, kind of encouraging. Doesn't say exactly when, but he does say how. He's already said to him, when you were young, you could dress yourself and have this kind of cost-free existence, figure it out for yourself. But now you're going to be led to stretch out your hands. And to us, that doesn't really mean much to us. We picture stretch out your hand, put a robe on for you or something like that, which is what it sounds like. But it would be the equivalent of us saying, hey, now if you go and you do this, something really naughty, something really bad, they'll give you the chair for that. You and I know that expression. We would say, okay, that doesn't mean they're going to go get a four-legged stool to put below you so you can sit on a chair. We know when somebody says, you'll get the chair, we know that that means by way of execution, right? So here is the expression that they were familiar with at the time. When you're stretching out your hands, you're stretching out your hand for crucifixion. So Jesus is giving Peter an indication. Excuse me. I'm froggy. Jesus is giving Peter an indication of not just that he's going to be an old man when this happens, but how he's going to die. And in fact, history tells us that is how Peter died. So Jesus says to him, you will be led around. You will stretch out your hands. And another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. So when he says to him now, follow me, these words are taking deeper weight because they already saw where Jesus walked. He marched himself to a cross. So Peter and others are are really wrestling with this idea and getting this kind of deep into their hearts that sacrifice is necessary, a necessary component of loving Jesus. It isn't just boldness. It isn't just enthusiasm. It isn't even just willingness. But sacrifice is a necessary component. Now, we have to detour just a little bit and talk about this because Peter had, I mean, Jesus had established with Peter that his love for him was of prime importance. And you don't get to sacrifice without understanding what love really looks like. Biblical love, as we see it in the scriptures, I know we're a broken record about this at faith, but biblical love is antithetical to worldly love. The reason why we harp on this, the reason why we try to remind all of our our ears at every drop of the hat is because it is the crucial point of everything else we're going to do. 
We're not just peddling duty and religion around here. We're not just saying give more to the church and be here on Sunday and do all these kinds of things as a matter of us just checking off the boxes and feeling good. We're chasing our Savior. We're following Jesus. And he's the one telling us you won't be able to do it well until you've settled your love for me. But biblical love is the exact opposite of what we hear and what we've been raised on and what we've, we've unfortunately experienced so much of in our life. There's a difference between being sacrificial, which is everything Jesus was, and being selfish, which is everything we're being told to be when it comes to love. It's kind of like when we're in the airplane and they come out and they say, okay, uh, this is how the, the masks come down and they're going to drop. And if you happen to have little ones with you, parents, I need you to hear this. It's important for you to put your mask on first so that you can tend to your little one. Your reaction, the reason why we're told this, is because our parental instinct is to go ahead and take care of them. In an emergency in there, it's saying you'll be no, of no use to them if you're not getting your own oxygen. So they have to say that. And then what the world has adopted primarily, I mean, it's been around for a long, long time, but we've really, you know, uh, uh, emphasized it over the last several decades, is we've said love is like that mask. You can't love others well until you love who? Yourself. The Bible says, though, this is a passage that we always hear at weddings and things. Why? Because 1 Corinthians 13 is the description of love. But right buried in the middle of that in verse 5, this description says that love uh, doesn't dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. Godly love is defined by sacrifice. It's demonstrated by sacrifice. We, We see that that's exactly who God is. We already saw this in perhaps the most famous verse in all the Bible back in chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world. Well, how do I know that? Because he gave his only son. Not because he thinks highly of you or he sheds a tear when you hurt or because he notices where you go. He's, he, all of those things are true of God and his care for us. But ultimately, how do I know that God loves me? Because he gave, he sacrificed his only son for you. To profess love for somebody else, and think about this in all of our context now, To profess love for somebody else but fail to express it through sacrifice is to perpetuate a lie. Now, if you're in a marriage like I am, you know some days you can really get this going great and then other days you're like, wow, I was really kind of swirled up living for me and taking care of myself to where I would even wonder if my spouse even thinks I love her. There are those seasons, there are those times where we get in a cloud and someone has to come and, you know, wake us up and say, hey, how much have you been giving to this? So many of the times that people come in and they say, we're having marriage issues or we're having difficulty with X, Y, and Z. I say, what do you think is going on? And they're listing this, 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 and this, and this. And those things are probably present and true, but I can always point it back to the root causes you've decided that you're no longer willing to lay your life down for the other one. It's a 50-50 proposition. It's, I will give if I get back, right? This is what the world has taught us. But Jesus says, I'm all in. You know, you give me nothing in return, is what he says. I give it all for you. We say, well, I give him praise. I give him my time. I give him... But then we compare it to the amazing sacrifice that we just walked through, through Good Friday and Easter, 
And we go, okay, whatever I bring to the table is not much. In comparison, he gave it all. He went 100-0. This wasn't a 50-50 thing with Jesus. So Jesus has said these kinds of things to them all along, but now he's wrapping it all up and they might be recalling. He said back in Luke nine, he says, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. This supports John's emphasis in the gospel. We've seen, I'll walk us through here for a little bit in review, but John has been emphasizing belief in a way that, that has taken on new meaning for the culture of the time. Remember in the last chapter in verse 31, it was a verse that we had been sharing from the beginning last year. John's purpose for writing this gospel, he says, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That is the, the, the whole theme of this gospel is that John says, I want to get you to a point where you actually believe that he is who he says he is, that he's done the things that he says he's done, and that in believing you will have life. The Greek ear at that time understood belief to be based on trust and, and, and engaging in trust, but it was a bit of an external kind of thing. You believe in a thing. You believe in a, a construct, if you will. But the gospel writers were taking it to new heights. They were saying that you are going to commit your belief to a person, totally to the person of Jesus Christ. In other words, they would, they would look at it as our faith is placed into Jesus. Not just in the construct of who he is, not just in the philosophies that he um, uh, perpetuates, not just in the uh, example that he left for us. The world has tons and tons of people that believe in that kind of frame. But what John was calling us to, what Jesus is calling us to, is to believe into him. That it's quite personal. Richard's describes it for us this way in the context of our faith in our relationship with Jesus believing has come to mean a couple of things first is it's that happy trust that a person places in the person of Jesus Christ again we're we're good with that we know that Christianity is based on Jesus the Christ but takes on a second application the allegiance to him that grows out of that very personal commitment This is why you hear Christians often ask the question, have you trusted in Jesus as your personal savior? If you go, I don't really know what you're getting at. Well, just kind of role play it with Peter. Think about what he was going through. Think about how personal this relationship is between Peter and Jesus. Think about the coolest person, the greatest person, the person that you just wanted to idolize, emulate, any of those kinds of things. You'd be sitting around going, I wonder if I'm going to see him today. You'd hear news of what he said from somewhere else and you'd just be like, oh, that's right, that's going on and everything. And then if they picked you to be on their team, you'd be like, I'm with the coolest cat in the world. This is amazing. Imagine the, the personal excitement, the personal allegiance, the personal dedication that comes with that. Sometimes we forget to imagine that because we don't have Jesus in the flesh with us like Peter and the other disciples did. 
But that's what it's intended to be. That's what John's hoping that we see is that that person still lives today, lives within us, and and we have that personal fixation with him. This is what John's been trying to get across in this word belief, an active, continuing personal trust in Jesus. He started things off back in chapter 1 in verse 12. Encouraging us to receive him, all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. In chapter 6, he called us to come to Jesus. Jesus is saying, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Later on, John would write a smaller letter, and he would say that, that, that we will love him in response. Why? Because he first loved us. This belief is an intimate belief. It's a personal one. Biblical belief goes beyond believing facts about Jesus to a life that acts like Jesus, a life that is in Jesus. Now, you and I know because I said we're all people and we're sometimes good at this and sometimes not. There might be here, some here that have never started this journey and you're sort of on the outside looking in going, I haven't, I know I haven't received him. I know I haven't placed my trust in Jesus. I'm maybe checking out faith as a church or set, excuse me, satisfying a request from someone that cares about me or invited me or something along those lines. I don't know what your situation is, but we all know how we can reserve a piece of ourselves and not give ourselves all the way into something, right? This is what counterfeit belief in Jesus looks and feels like. There's a limited trust. I'm okay with acknowledging that there's something special about Jesus, I'm okay to elevate him above some other key figures or something like that. But I can tell when I'm holding a piece of myself back to say I'm not all in. And how do we know that? Because it's a lack of active following. In chapter 8, John had said, uh, John had wrote for us that uh, Jesus had said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, and, and that abiding was that continual walk moving forward, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now just thinking this through Peter's ears again, through his mind, he's hearing parts of that statement that was said in John chapter 8. Remember, this is before Peter started to doubt his own capabilities. In John chapter 8, those verses that we just said, if you abide in me and in my word, Peter's like, oh yeah, it's me. All day long. I am in. Jesus can count on me. That's the, that, those are the ears that he heard this in. But now he's been brought through something and he's starting to recall all those boastful times. He's starting to look at his own ability to actually make good on those boasts. Because he didn't hear it in the context of Jesus' death and resurrection. He certainly didn't hear it in the context of his own failure. But now that he had failed and Jesus had won, he, he could accurately count the cost of following. He could take inventory as Jesus is saying, do you love me? Peter's thinking to himself, I don't think I love you as much as I want to love you, but I am in. I will learn how. I will do this. Where do you want me to go next? He's counting the cost. He's seeing that sacrifice is necessary for loving Jesus, but he's also starting to find renewed life in Jesus post-failure. So he's seeing that sacrifice is necessary for living in Jesus. 
Let's go back to verse 20 of our text in John 21. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. And this is where John gives us some, ta-da, it's me. He's been saying through the whole gospel, you know, the one whom Jesus loved and all this kind of stuff. Now he's like, it's the big reveal at the end of it. He says, the one who had also leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? So just a step back, John was able to say that. So Peter turns and he sees that John is following And when he saw that, verse 21, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this guy? Jesus said to him, if it's my will that he remain until I I come, what is that to you? You follow me. And John will later clarify, like we we had heard read for us, that he was saying, okay, I'm also going to put a rumor to bed here. John was living under the rumor that he would never die until Jesus came. And the older John got, he was thinking, I got to squash this rumor because I'm feeling like it's the end. And so he started clarifying, Jesus never said I would live until the second coming. He said, if I were to choose to do that, what does it matter to Peter? But Peter is probably, we've, we've watched a, a transformation in Peter, right? We've seen his heart start to melt for those around him. We've seen him humbled and reduced to the same level as all the other guys, probably starting to recognize their commitment as equal to or greater than his. And also in other parts of the scriptures, we see John and Peter in a lot of the same uh, images and stuff. So there's probably a bond going on there. There's probably a closeness. And Peter, with a new, a renewed broken heart and a sensitivity that wasn't available to him before uh, the crucifixion, he might be turning and saying to Jesus, hey, what about my friend here? Can, can you let, let me know how he's going to do? How it's going to end for him? I think what Peter is concerned about here, and this is why I said that this is necessary for living in Jesus. He's not concerned about, oh, no, you mean I'm going to get crucified? He heard this is the death that you're going to die in order to glorify God. Peter brought so low and feeling completely useless for Jesus. And and Jesus says, by the way, you're going to be led where you don't want to go. Your hands are going to get stretched out. And that's how you're going to glorify God. Now, Peter says, you've just given me my purpose for living. Because the, the heart of the disciple, the heart of the passionate pursuer of Jesus Christ will go to any lengths to know that what they did, what they sacrificed, what they laid down counted For God, could you imagine, because we live in such doubt and wondering, am I doing enough? Am I good enough? Am I in place? Can you imagine if God just kind of ripped through the the ceiling of your kitchen one day and said, so-and-so, you know, Jack, you're doing all right. You're you're still part of the team. You're with me. What would we, we'd be like, oh. Now, we've been given the assurance of our salvation in the scriptures, The Bible tells us these things. When we're in Christ, it's all him and not us. So our failures don't, they don't knock us out of the race in that sense. It's his grace. But we live in such doubt. Does he still care about me? Does he still want to use me? And this is what's going on. And so Peter's been given this great relief that his life and his death is going to count for Jesus. So maybe he's saying, what about my friend John? John, as we're experiencing, as we're finishing this up, 
he had a great purpose to fulfill in giving us the fourth account of the gospel. So Jesus' response is, keep following me. Peter, you have this terrible habit of taking your eyes off of what I'm trying to get you to do. Remember the, the whole sea incident? You started looking at the waves around you and bloop, 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 bloop. You went right down. Now you're turning around and looking for John and going, hey, well, what about him? And Jesus like, can I just get your focus for a second here? Follow me. And in the original construction of that language, he's saying, keep following me. Stay on course, Peter. That's what I love about Peter. He keeps showing his humanity. It was requiring Peter to let go of who he used to be in order to embrace who Jesus was calling him to be. And Jesus continually links this love that we are to show him with submission to following, to hearing his voice. He had told us in John 14 and verse 15, he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Jump down to 21. He says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me and he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. We separate because we've, we've psychologized this thing so much. We don't want anybody to feel bad about themselves. We separate obedience from love. We separate faithfulness from love and we just score people based on their intentions. Whether or not they execute it or not, whether or not they're faithful to it or not, I know they mean well. But Jesus is saying, I'm not giving that kind of wiggle room here. If you love me, you will follow. If you love me, you will obey me. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, it is proof that they love me. Again, that's why we started hearing lunch pails folding and blankets rolling up and stuff. People were like, well, if this is what it means to follow him, I just wanted the kind of religion that made me feel good like I was accomplishing something. We don't get to a place of surrender until we've counted its cost and actively engaged in starting to accept that surrender. And the only thing that can properly motivate us to willingly submit to following another's rule is simply love. We, we saw this in Jesus three questions in a row. Let's wrap up the book this morning. I, b- b- rather than going back to anything in the text, though, I want to bring our attention to 2 Corinthians 5, which ironically was um, what we studied um, just a couple of books before getting into John. But Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15, he says, for the love of Christ controls us. Now, if I could stop right there, And say, if that became the life verse of so many of us in this room, to say that the love of Christ is what constrains me, controls me, gives me parameters in my life. Because don't you feel like sometimes we suffer from just too many options? We have so many options of doing something else. And it's like what we so often want is control. I tell parents this all the time. It was something that Chris and I had to really wrestle with as we were raising little ones. Everything what kids want is order, guidance, borders. They want, they want discipline. They don't act like they want it in the moment, but you, you give them a life without any of that and they go chaotic and frustrated and heartbroken. It's who we are. We want direction. And so Paul is saying it's the love of Christ that sets me straight. That controls my life. Because we've concluded this. That he laid it all down for us. That one has died for all. Therefore all have died. 
And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. That soldier under Cyrus's command, as his wife looked at him and said, I only have eyes for the one who was willing to lay his life down. Do you think that they went home and wrestled with this modern fight that we have about biblical headship and submission in the home? I know, it just got heavy, didn't it? No, seriously, do you think Cyrus's wife went home and said, I'm not making your lunch again tomorrow. And I know I'm being 1950s here. Please forgive me. Just using it as a dumb example. Do you, do you think she would have had, this is, this is a picture that's given of the church and Christ. As I see his sacrifices, I see all he's laid, and I would dare have the gall to, to not want to just do anything he needs of me. I guess I have to clarify because it's 2022. Jesus is the perfect husband to submit to and we are not. (laughs) Hudson Taylor is a great missionary to China. And he was acknowledged for his incredible work. And as he was being introduced, they said, because of his great love for the Chinese people, so much has been accomplished for the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And he got up there and he shook his head and he says, I appreciate those comments, but no. It's not because I loved the Chinese, but because I love God. It might be a subtle point to so many, and it might sound like he's saying, I don't love these people. Are you kidding? I only did it because I was grinding it out for God. But that's not what he's saying, is it? He said, like Jesus said, in comparison of your love for me, it would look like hating your father and mother. It would look like hating your children, hating your, your old life. Why? Because you love me so much, the love of Christ would control you to do the things that are most productive for his kingdom, that are most fulfilling for the soul. So the question comes to us, how would we fill in the blank? If somebody said to you, you know what, you're really good at this or that, or you, I can tell that you really love that person and it's really admirable. Can you imagine if your first response was like, well, I appreciate that, but I don't do it because I love them. I do it because I love Jesus. Or is it your spouse or is it your kids or your parents, your friends, your coworkers, people in your community that others would acknowledge that in us and say, wow, you really love people well for the first response to be. It isn't them and it's not even me. The love of Christ is what controls me. I hope that we've seen as we've gone through these 21 chapters together that there is grace made available to us. And particularly it's brought home in this restoration of Peter. Peter is not the central character in this gospel. But he's the relatable one to us because we're broken, we're flawed, we're humiliated. We're we're pulling ourselves out of the mud so often because we know who we are, what we've done, or what we can't be. And Jesus continues to show this amazing grace, this incredible love that puts us back on our feet, dusts us off, cleans us off, and says, I have a mission and I want to include you. Follow me. This is what having life in his name looks like while we're still on this earth. And I urge you to count the cost of this love and come follow Jesus. There's mercy and grace to be found over and over again. And all we can do is surrender to follow. We have concluded the gospel of John. And I told some of the guys earlier, I wanted to do this with a big, heavy Bible. 
say we've accomplished something together. And I appreciate all of your attentiveness for the last year and a half on this. But I trust it's been a blessing. I'm going to ask you to stand and let's pray together. Lord God, thank you, Father, for leading your people, leading us as your sheep and giving us, Lord, your shepherd's heart to have watch over us, to protect us and guide us and love us. But Lord, also giving us the faith to believe. We know that any ounce of anything within us still is not enough to really take any of these things seriously. It's by the faith that you've gifted us with, Lord, that causes us to believe. And so we thank you for that, Lord. And Lord, this room is full this morning of your followers, of disciples of Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that you would bless them in their steps. I pray, Lord, you would give them the strength to continue. I pray, Lord, that they would continue to learn how to contextualize this calling you have on their life so that in their circles of influence, in their areas of influence, Lord, they would be faithful to shine the light of Jesus in every opportunity. Give us grace for the failures. Remind us that your mercy is new every time we deny you. But Lord, change us so that we don't want to ever go back to that again. Make us new so that we can represent you, Lord, to this very dark world. We thank you, Lord, for the salvation you've given us. We thank you, Lord, for the word that you've given to light the way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.